is Sophia Osborne, and you're listening to the Root and Stem podcast, a podcast exploring issues and stories in STEAM education. In today's episode, we'll be exploring how technology and artificial intelligence can help with language learning and revitalization. I got to speak with Aidan Pine, a research officer with the National Research Council of Canada, where he works on the Indigenous Languages Technology Project an initiative with the mandate of creating software to help Indigenous language revitalization. Pine is also the creator of Mother Tongues, an organization focused on providing tools for language revitalization, including free, open-source software that allows communities to create their own dictionary apps. I asked Pine how he first became interested in language revitalization. Oh man, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> I guess there's kind of two two things that I would say about that. The first is that I've kind of always been interested in language generally. I was one of the only people I knew growing up that, you know, was asking my parents for a like Greek dictionary growing up. <laughs> I just found it really fascinating that people all around the world speak differently and communicate differently. And what does that mean? What does that entail? I found that really fascinating growing up as a monolingual child. And then I did my undergrad, I started doing my undergrad at Concordia University in Montreal. And one of the professors there, Charles Rice, was the prof for my very first linguistics class. And I just took it because I thought I was kind of interested. And he said, you know, you're from BC, what are you doing out here? There's so many interesting languages out in British Columbia. And I kind of didn't know what he had meant. You know, I, I grew up in the colonial education system and the amount of information that we received about the the people of where I grew up and the languages that they spoke was very, very minimal. You know, I think I grew up thinking that maybe there was unindigenous language and didn't know if it was still spoken, definitely didn't know any details about it. And I kind of look back at that comment that he made as kind of the, the first tug at the colonial sweater that was knit over my eyes kind of thing, starting to kind of pull things apart a little bit, because it kind of stuck out with me. And then a couple of years later, after I kind of dropped out of university and went to go cook in Denmark for a while, I started looking at courses again. And sure enough, at the University of Victoria, University of British Columbia, there were whole programs dedicated to First Nations languages you know, introduction to a Salishan language or a Wakashan language. And that got me really interested as well. And when I came back and I joined the First Nations Languages uh, program at UBC, that's when this kind of combination of bringing my interest in language with this kind of political motivation, I guess, that the education I received growing up about how me and my family got here <laughs> and what role I had in this society and, and what my relationship was to this land kind of got upended a little bit. And I found that combination of doing something that I was intellectually interested in with language and morally, politically convicted of as well, a very kind of fulfilling and interesting combination of things to pursue. So yeah, in my very first year at UBC, I wanted to get involved somehow in something that was going on related to language revitalization beyond just my coursework. And the UBC Linguistics Department had a, a research project with the, a language called Gixen, which is a language spoken up in Northern BC. And, you know, I didn't have many linguistic skills to speak of at the time, but they, they brought me on and I knew how to transcribe in the phonetic alphabet and things like that. And 
And so I started working with a number of different Gixen speakers who were coming in to, to uh, work with the department every week. And we started, well, I started at that point contributing to a project that had been going on for a couple of years before then, which was a dictionary project. And this was a dictionary project where speakers were recording different words or recording example sentences about the words. We were, you know, collecting all of this information, this lexicographic information and compiling it into a dictionary. And the idea was that this dictionary would become mobilized, I guess, to help support teachers and learners in, in the language. And then in my last year of my undergrad, we started looking at different options for mobilizing that data. And that in 2016 meant turning it into some sort of app or website or something. And it was incredibly difficult. There were a lot of companies, they didn't really understand the issues that surrounded these types of dictionaries. They maybe had expertise in building websites generally, but they didn't really know how to work with indigenous languages. They didn't know what kind of fonts to use. They didn't know, yeah, they just didn't really know about what the situation was. And they were quoting kind of exorbitant amounts of money, right? So tens of thousands of dollars, if not $100,000 or more to produce an app. And at the time, the only dictionary apps that were available were available for iOS. And I had an Android phone. And so I thought, well, this is frustratingly inaccessible. <laughs> you know, this is not the, the goal of this. We put you know years of work into this. And you also know that there's a lot of other people putting years of work into recording and compiling dictionaries. Why isn't there a an easier way to publish this. So I kind of, my, my undergrad honors thesis was just to make a mobile dictionary app for Gixen. And then I started kind of realizing, well, there's actually a lot more kind of similarities than there are differences here. If you kind of think about what a lot of communities are wanting. And so eventually that project ended up becoming Mother Tongues, which is available on iOS and uh, Android. It has a customize, customizable approximate search algorithm. So one of the really frustrating things that I found about using dictionaries at that time was, you know, I was a learner of the language. And actually, the majority of people who use these dictionary apps are learners. And so there was this frustrating experience sometimes when the search algorithm they were using was very rigid. You had to spell the words exactly as they were written in the dictionary. So I was a learner, and in order to look up a word, I had to already know exactly how to spell it, which <laughs> is a bit of a paradox, right? That's not a great learning tool. And so there's this frustrating experience of feeling like the word was probably accessible, but it was just out of reach. And so that was the kind of impetus, I guess, for building an approximate search algorithm that let let people kind of, it, it met people halfway, right? It said, okay, well, we can anticipate the kinds of mistakes that, that learners are going to make. Maybe they don't hear the difference between a, in Gixen, for example, a K, which is just like a normal K in English, and a, a K with an underline, which is more like a. So maybe they don't hear that difference so well. Let's just collapse the difference for of that for the purpose of the search algorithm and return results for both. You know, there were other reasons like maybe people didn't have the keyboard. Maybe they had a perfect ear and they just didn't have the keyboard installed on their device. Well, this kind of met the users halfway for that. Or maybe they wrote with a slightly different writing system. Maybe they were more comfortable with the kind of 
Western dialect and some of the words were in the Eastern dialect. So for any number of reasons, it became really clear that actually approximate search is really important for these types of learner-focused dictionaries. And so combining multi-platform compatibility, so it's available for the web, Android and iOS, this customizable approximate search algorithm and offline functionality. So everything works offline once you install the app initially. And crucially, I released it free and open source. So nobody has to, you know, ask me for permission to use it or build their own their own dictionary app with it. I, I wanted to kind of reduce the, the bar of entry, I guess, for communities who had already put in a, a lot of time and effort and money into making the, the data, collecting all the data for their language to then make it accessible. I asked Pine how artificial intelligence fits into his language revitalization work. I, I wouldn't say I'm like a reluctant technologist, but I, I definitely didn't get into it thinking, oh, I'm going to you know, work with technology. It just happens to be that a lot of the applications that we think about for language tools have something to do with digital technology. But I'm definitely not, you know, an AI evangelist or something. I really take a, a kind of approach to technology that tries to match technology with the goals that communities have. So I view technology as a force multiplier. It multiplies the force of people to achieve goals that they might have either quicker or with fewer resources. And that's where I think the, the possibility of technology to empower people's efforts kind of lies. But I worry sometimes with a lot of the newer technology that comes out is people kind of flock to it because it's shiny or it looks cool or it, but without really taking careful evaluation of, well, what goals is this technology actually trying to achieve, <laughs> you know? How, what are we actually doing with this? Is this actually helping or is this a, a distraction? And so the First People's Cultural Council actually released a really good checklist called Check Before You Tech. It gives a good list of things for communities to kind of think about before adopting a particular technology. You know, what are the privacy <laughs> stipulations with using this tool? What are the consequences? Is there vendor lock-in? If I use this tool and put all my data into this for years and years, can I get it back out again? Or does it kind of, if the, if the business model changes and they put a paywall up, do I lose all of the content I put into it? These are really important questions for people to be thinking about when they're thinking about adopting a particular technology. So I guess I, with mother tongues, it's fairly conservative, the approach that I have been taking at incorporating different bits of kind of new technologies into it. That being said, in my role at the National Research Council, I'm the technical director for a new program called the Speech Generation for Indigenous Language Education Program, which it's a text-to-speech project, which is a subset of what is kind of commonly called AI. I think a lot of people in AI research have a little bit of a problem with the term AI some, sometimes, just because it is such a buzzword. It kind of makes people think that it's more magic than it actually is. That being said, the whole reason for us developing text-to-speech technology in the first place is to augment tools like mother tongues. So we, for a long time, have been building tools with communities that are entirely text-based, like verb conjugators or dictionaries. The dictionary project isn't one that's part of the National Research Council, but it's usually one of the first projects that communities will develop with technology as a dictionary or as I said, a verb conjugator. And with this verb conjugator in particular that we kind of 
was the impetus for the Texas Speech Project. We're developing it in partnership with uh, Mohawk Kanyangeha Immersion School out in Six Nations. And when we did user testing with the users of the of the tool, one of the frequent things we heard was, can we hear the pronunciation? Can we hear what some of these words sound like? We've got this verb conjugator website and we can look up how to conjugate things and that's cool, but we want to be able to hear what these words sound like. And we have hundreds of thousands, I think at last count, but 650,000 different conjugation forms in that computational model of the grammar there. So it would take somebody, I think we worked this out, averaging four or five hours of recording a day, which is about the most you can you know, feasibly do, <laughs> five days a week, it would take them over 10 years just to record that, which is a terrible use of their time. Right? It's very boring to record things like, you know, I see you, you see me, we see them. Like that's a very boring time in the studio. But with Texas Speech, if we can train a neural network, if we can train this computational model on the relationship between the text and the speech, sourcing data from things that are actually important to record, like maybe we record just one hour of a story or an, an audiobook, and we use that to then generate the more boring stuff. That seems like a good use of our time, right? So that's kind of the, the basis of the project is what's the least amount of data we need in order to be able to generate a lot of the other recordings to augment a text-based technology at a quality that I guess is sufficient for teaching and learning. Another project Pine is working on with the Indigenous Languages Technology Project is called the Read Along Studio, a tool which allows educators to create interactive read-along stories with automatically synchronized text and speech. What we found when we were talking with a lot of educators, curriculum developers, and also students was that there was a real bottleneck for creating educational content, audio and text educational content in Indigenous languages. So a lot of communities, a lot of the teachers maybe had some text and they maybe had some corresponding audio. You know, somebody had read the text or something, a three-minute story, for example. But then combining those two things in an educationally accessible format was a real challenge. And we found talking with learners and also just my impression working with this kind of stuff in the past, trying to learn languages in this way where maybe I have a Word document and I've got an MP3 file and I click play and I try and follow along. I learn the first 15 seconds really, really well, and then I get lost. <laughs> and so I might know the beginning of the story really, really well, but around minute two or minute three, I'm, it gets fuzzier and fuzzier because I, I get lost throughout the recording. And so what Readalongs does is it uses a form of speech recognition called text audio alignment to take that bit of text and that bit of audio and match them. It finds out where in the audio a specific word is said. So it doesn't say, it doesn't, you know, it's not traditional speech recognition where you just provided the audio and it says it writes out the transcription for you. You have to have both the text and the audio together and then it'll put them together. And then we developed a format for viewing the result of that. So it, it highlights the words as it's spoken. It lets you pause at a specific point in the document. It lets you click on a word to hear it again. Just interact with the text and the audio in a little bit more intuitive of a way. And it's also available offline. So once you create this read-along, we embed the audio, you can add images to it, the text, everything into a single 
file that you can open up on your computer, on your phone, and you don't need an internet connection to view it. So we also built this read-along studio, which is a web interface for creating these read-alongs with new languages. And it currently supports, I believe, 39 different languages explicitly. Most of them are Indigenous languages spoken in Canada, with a few exceptions. But we've designed it actually in a way for it to work with most of the world's languages. I say that kind of hesitantly because we obviously don't have the <laughs> ability to test it with, you know, even close to all 7,000 languages. But we've done workshops now nationally and internationally, and we've we've had people kind of tested it with languages that it doesn't support explicitly. So Korean, for example, Western Armenian, indigenous Taiwanese languages, lots of different languages have, have tried this and, and it, it's worked. There's a few caveats to that. So if the writing system that you have is kind of like the Mandarin Chinese writing system where it's not an alphabet or syllabics based system. It's a logographic system where a symbol represents the word. It won't work with that. There's too much information that's missing between the written form and the pronunciation form. But there's this undetermined option in the read-along studio so that if your language isn't specifically mentioned, it's likely to work with, with that. To end our interview, I asked Pine what his hopes are for the future of mother tongues. <laughs> it's hard, right? Because I, I put a lot of work into that that project and it's kind of developed into this thing that a lot of different people are using. I guess my hope for it is just that it continues on that path. It continues to be free, continues to be open source. It continues to be a, a viable option for people if they want to publish their dictionary data without having to fork over a bunch of money or worry about the privacy rules that are that are implied with that. There's kind of a constant amount of work, I guess, that's involved in keeping that platform looking current, fixing security issues that might come up, little bugs here and there that just happen over time when and require maintenance. The First Peoples Cultural Council actually recently got a grant to do a rebuild of the app version. And so that's about a few months underway right now. And so we're hoping that in I think a year and a half from now, there'll be a whole brand new version of Mother Tongues. And they've been incredibly on board with this idea of open source. And even though the development's not happening directly from me, I'm kind of helping ensure that the search algorithm works in the same way. Some of the kind of core things are going to function the same way. But beyond that, it's other people. And that's the beauty of this kind of open source community is that contributions that one organization has or makes are able to kind of ripple out and and support other communities that they can also take those improvements and, and run with them. So yeah, I just for the community, I guess, to keep on growing and for more and more people to, to use it and make it better, that would be my hope for it. Mm-hmm.